Hello, hello, hello. I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Matthew Brayman, who is a licensed clinical social worker. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, a podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in a helping profession, asking questions that you want the answers to, and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers, and I cannot spell the word February. I have the hardest time spelling February my whole life. I had a thought this morning that no one can. (laughs) I think my husband can because his birthday is in February. So like he knows how to spell it. But like it's as a I I have some I have some history with spelling that I'll tell you after you introduce yourself. But um, yeah, well, there's a needless there's a needlessly silent R that I don't even think isn't meant yeah whatever it's yeah. i get it you're not too alone. many r's in the word February. <laughs> correct and i'm sarah an lpc <laughs> from pennsylvania transplant from south jersey i'm a straight cis white woman and my pronouns are she her and i have shockingly underestimated my 3000 piece nicktoons puzzle yikes you've been working on that for a while it's been a long time <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah it's been a couple months and if you've tuned in, you've known that I'm doing this one on the floor because I don't currently have table space. So I'm also <laughs> set sitting on the floor. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, I just finished all the Ninja Turtles, which I don't know why they're on a Nicktoons uh, puzzle. Who knows? But I'm currently, I just finished uh, Ren and Stimpy's face. <laughs> <laughs> also, my husband's four years older than me, so he we're at a weird intersect where he doesn't know a lot of the cartoons. So I've had to describe the characters of SpongeBob Mm. to him. Oh, okay. Which were right on the front of my brain. Yeah. Um, I think I have a negative core belief that I'm bad at spelling. Uh, (laughs) It's all started in grade three when I could Mm -hmm. spell the word banana correctly. And I beat out all of the kids in my class. I remember this vividly. I remember mm-hmm. all the kids spelling banana and not being able to spell it. And then me just like taking a just just like, you know, taking a chance, spelling banana and getting it right. And I got to be in like the school wide spelling bee. Uh, and I spelled the word nickel wrong. And um, I think since then, I've been a bad speller. So I don't know if it's true or what. I just have hard time like I especially when words have double letters, like I, like the word tomorrow always kind of like trips me up. Uh, February. Uh, I'm trying to apologize. Apologize is fine. The word definitely, mm -mm, definitely sometimes mess that one up. Uh, I've never gotten apologize right to this day. There's so many others. I mean, I have obviously, but (laughs) I don't think I have without spell check or 
because Canva doesn't do very good spell checks. So I think I also need to Google it before. And that's that. Also, I think banana is spelled banana in like 15 languages. Isn't it ananas? Oh, wait, no, that's pineapple. And it's like weird because like in every language, pineapple is ananas. And then in English and like one other language, it's pineapple. I didn't know that. Yeah. Ananas. Piña. No. Yeah, and then that's that's like the other one. I think I could be wrong. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm right about that. Fact check. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I could Google it. But yeah, I there's so many words. I mean, growing up with my name and living in the state of Connecticut. Oh that's so yeah, hard. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are hard spelling. So you you learned how to spell the exceptions to the rules, but some of the words that were more typical maybe was like, nah. Yeah, when you and spelled like, nickel wrong, was it L? Did you spell like was it the L E part? I, yeah, I'm not going to even say part. what I think it, was it is. The LE part. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also like grew up in a neighborhood called Nichols, which was spelled N I C H O L S. So I don't know if that like okay tripped me up. Uh, probably not. not but um, <laughs> I also for a long time could not spell my middle name correctly, and it's May. <laughs> Thought, wait what is the spelling my name is spelled m-a-e uh and like for a while I was writing m-a-y because like I learned the month may and you there was like stuff I wrote and the y is going in the wrong direction we we okay I'm not gonna touch that we had <laughs> in first grade my teacher's name was Mrs. Vote and she spelled it v-o-t-e and I Ooh. later learned that she actually spelled it v-o-g-h-t and I think she just <laughs> like made it vote so that we could spell it that's so good I mean luckily- that could also be something that I'm completely misremembering <laughs> <laughs> um oh, luckily one of my passwords for the computer in middle school was receive r-e-c-e-i-v-e because also the i-e I have to constantly be like i before e except after c but like also mm-hmm. this word is weird and why is it not like that um <laughs> You know, the English line, like as I go through, as I go through learning Spanish, I'm like, man, what a bunch of exceptions. And then immediately I'm like, nope, nope, I have no room to talk. And then, and then I decide to learn German in college, which is actually like a little bit more like, like straightforward. The ein Mm. and ein is so much more helpful. Like the I, it's IE that I have problem with. Um, But in German, it's like Stein is like, you say the I, so it's it's I (laughs) Mm -hmm. right I learned yeah I I I love that German you know coming off of the gender binary too has the neutral has the neutral gender and when I encountered that also reading my favorite book word slut after encountering that I was like we should all make a shift to having a neutral a neutral gender in our language it would make things a whole hell of a lot easier for many 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 people among other things yep I agree. Yep. Uh, how clean are your floors? Well, for the first time ever, I have, I'm admitting to a mistake. <gasps> Mark your calendars. It wasn't a mistake as much as oh, I, my calendars. I don't want the, I don't want the entire, uh, I don't want Murdoch mysteries to think I don't value their uh, <laughs> production. I think it's a great show. And I think if you're still making it by the time this episode airs, I'd love to be your first um, American uh, guest. Because I don't want the entire 
Canadian Actors Guild coming after me because every Canadian actor and actress has been on that show. It's a great show, great production, great costumes, great acting. <laughs> they like send you a note costumes. after like like bugging your house and finding out about our... Yeah. Okay. yeah, and you know what? Murdoch invented the bug. That's yeah, blink it, twice if uh, someone else is in the room with you, please. Oh, <laughs> oh she blinked twice, okay. I did, always. I'm always blinking. <laughs> Oh my god! I finished WrestleMania one. It was fantastic. Is that your floor? Is that your floor being cleaned? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone knew I was going to finish it, so I love it. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, stay tuned after the break as we uh, come back with our lesson for today. Bye. For now. <laughs> And now it's time for our lesson, history and otherwise. The lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, good and bad, in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Our sources for today include The History of the Man Box by Mark Green, Putting My Man Face On, A Grounded Theory of College Men's Gender Identity Development by K.E. Edwards and S.R. Jones, Man in a Box, The Traditional Hegemonic Definition of Masculinity by K.E. Edwards, the Man Box, The Link Between Emotional Suppression and Male Violence by uh, Mark Green, as well as wikipedia.org. Trigger warnings for today. We will discuss not, not the content of, but the existence of toxic masculinity as well as violence. During the Victorian... Let's... Joanna. Hey, Joanna, pay hey. attention. Today, yeah, we're going to talk about the... <laughs> we're going to talk about masculinity throughout history. During the Victorian era, masculinity underwent a transformation from traditional heroism. Scottish philosopher Thomas Carlyle wrote in 1831, the old ideal of manhood has grown obsolete and the new is still invisible to us. And we grope after it in the darkness, one clutching this phantom. Hmm. I, yeah, so that hasn't ended this like constant pursuit of we need to be stronger, which is, Ugh. that's a lot to have to fight against and carry. Boxing was professionalized in America and Europe in the 19th century. It emphasized the physical and confrontational aspects of masculinity with bare knuckle fighting representing, quote, the manly art in America. At the beginning of the 20th century, a traditional family consisted of the father as the breadwinner and the mother as a homemaker. Despite women's increased presence in the paid labor force and contributions to family income, men's identities remained centered on their working lives and specifically their economic contributions. And okay, so going off the histories that we, we read before, we're getting a different side of this. Like, what a prison that is for both people in that partnership. Mm -hmm. um, so, not only can the women like break through the glass ceiling, but the men are unable to have identities outside of what I'm bringing home. In 1963, social theorist Irving Goffman's work on stigma management. In 1963, social theorist Irving Goffman's work on stigma management presented a list of traits prescribed as categorically masculine for American men. 
quote, in an important sense, there is only one complete unblushing male in America, a young, married, white, bourbon, northern, heterosexual, Protestant father of college education, fully employed of good complexion, weight and height, and recent record of sports. So drawing attention to that there is an archetype of the masculine person and everybody that doesn't fit that, and even people that do fit that are yeah, unable to deviate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, writing in 1974, Argould asserted that the provider role was central to adult men's identities, as masculinity is often measured by the size of a man's economic contribution to the family. Masculinity is also secured by denying any semblance of softness, emotion, femininity, or any characteristic associated with women. Overwhelmingly, the construction of masculinity most valued in the latter part of the 20th century and early 21st century is one that is independent, sexually assertive, and athletic, among other traits. A shift has been identified, however. In a 2008 study, it was shown that men frequently rank good health, a harmonious family life, and a good relationship with their spouse or partner as more important to their quality of life than physical attractiveness and success with women. All right, Joanna, so now we're going to talk about the man box, okay. which right. we are very excited to learn about today. As we know, the concept of gender as we know, masculinity and femininity is a socially defined construct, meaning we made it up and we projected on what we experience now. Our ideas of what it means to be a man or a woman come from our experiences and the messages we get from others. Gender is normalized through culture, context, structures, and interactions. A term that researchers use to describe the dominant form of masculinity in the United States is the term at this time is known as the hegemonic masculinity, which Mark Green and others have described as the man box. The term implies a rigid set of expectations, perceptions, and behaviors of what is quote, manly behavior. Because it is hierarchy, hegemonic masculinity marginalizes men who do not perfectly fit the description of quote, the real man. Because no man perfectly fits the description, obviously, all men are limited by hegemonic masculinity through policing of behaviors such as, quote, violations. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the man box. In the early 1980s, authors Paul Kivel, Alan Creighton, and others in the Oakland Men's Project gave birth to a powerful central pillar of men's work. They developed the act like a man box in their work with adolescents in public schools around the San Francisco Bay Area. In 1992, Kibble documented their workshop progress in his book, Men's Work, How to Stop the Violence that Tears Our Lives Apart. It was the year that Kibble published his Act Like a Man box, workshop, graphics, and everything we have come to define around the term. And in Kibble's own words, this is, a, this is a large quote, in the early 1980s, I and others in the Oakland Men's Project were working in diverse schools, facilitating workshops on male, on male and female socialization and violence in relationships. We developed the concepts and visuals of the act like a man box and the act like a lady box from student response from student responses to images of men and women in popular media. We also used role plays like our father-son role play, and we developed exercises like the men's cost and men's benefits stand-ups. By the late 1980s, we were doing this work not only with young people, but with adults, especially men's groups and adults who worked with young people. All of this was first published in 1992 in Helping Teens Stop Violence by Alan Creighton and Paul Kibble and Men's Work by Paul Kibble. The work was widely available, used, and adapted around the country, end quote. 
In the mid-1990s, Tony Porter, the founder of A Call to Men, was doing men's work in Rockland County, New York, as well as serving as the director of an alcohol and drug treatment program at Nyack Hospital. At that time, a local service organization, Volunteer Counseling Services, invited Paul Kibble to speak. Porter states it was then that he first heard the phrase, the acts like a man box. Over time, Porter, who was working with populations of men in penitentiaries and other challenging spaces, determined that the act like a man box language would not work with these populations. In 2010, Porter recorded his now famous TED talk titled A Call to Men, which to date has been viewed over 2.6 million times on the TED site alone. His work with men has furthered these ideas and made the man box a globally recognized phrase. And the work continues. Stay I'm so excited to hear more about this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, stay tuned after the break as we talk to our interviewee for today. All right. Today, we welcome Matthew Brayman, who is a licensed clinical social worker in the states of New York, Georgia, and Maryland. He's an imperfect new dad, therapist, and CEO of his private practice called Verve Psychotherapy, which is a modern and inclusive online mental health practice for men, new dads, and their partners. Matthew earned his Master of Social Work degree from New York University Silver School of Social Work in 2013. He started out working as a bilingual therapist for one of the largest behavioral health providers in New York City, where he eventually became a clinical supervisor. He treated a cultural diverse population of English and Spanish speaking children, adolescents, adults, and families in Brooklyn, New York. Life transitions took him to Atlanta, Georgia, where he spent one year working for a small group practice and also an adolescent crisis stabilization unit that served teens from 14 to 17 years of age who were at risk of suicide, violence, psychosis, and substance use. Matthew facilitated dialectical behavioral therapy skills groups for teens at the crisis unit and also coordinated the family support program for parents to effectively manage their teens' transition back to the community. More life transitions and, and a growing family moved Matthew back to New York for one year before moving again to finally settle in Baltimore, Maryland, where he and his wife now live with their 11-month-old son and their two-year-old puppy named Emery. Together, they love taking family walks to explore their new neighborhood, trying new food, and singing along with Elmo. Matthew is an avid fan of Manchester United Football Club, listening to music by Duran Jones and the Indications, and spending time cooking in the kitchen. His dad jokes are usually not that great, and that makes sense. Welcome. So happy to be here with you both. Thank you. I love your, uh, I, I loved your intro. <laughs> Hey, Matthew, from what I hear, I mean, I think this is a big for any football, for any football fans in the U.S., but Manchester United has a very, very intense following over here. I'm pretty sure you could look at any corner of the globe and, and find a, a Manchester United fan somewhere. They're, they're big. Um, nice you know, I would also say I... Uh, I uh, played soccer from a very young age. It's just such a, a big part of my life. Shaped a lot about who I am and, and uh, you know, certainly talking to all of this uh, masculinity talk, it didn't really fit the mold of some of the other kind of, uh, uh, you know, sports that are valued by so, so many in American culture. So, you know, even that part of me, um, something that I 
experienced uh, a lot of joys, but also, um, you know, maybe kind of feeling a little bit on the outside here and there. So, um, yeah, lots, you, you, like I said, lots of people around the world love Manchester United. You could look anywhere and find a fan, um, but I'm definitely a big one. That's wonderful. Well, we are so happy to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, I'm uh, just thinking a little bit about uh, the spelling. I just want to make sure that I spell everything correctly um, mm -hmm. and pronounce everything. I know uh, I really enjoyed all of your intros and the, the uh, kind of uh, leading conversation there as well. So I'm uh, working now in solo private practice, and that's been about six months. I've had a pretty decent start. You know, there's always that kind of uh, maybe a leap of faith people might take moving from uh, you know, community mental health and you know, my pathway was, uh, like you mentioned, working in a crisis unit after child and family mental health clinic and working in a, a group private practice. So that definitely helped. Um, I've had a lot of support with some really great supervisors over the years, and I'm just trying to show up for the clients I work with now, uh, primarily trying to work with men, new dads and their partners. But I, you know, I, uh, that's kind of the specialty area. But of course, I work uh, from generalist perspectives, working with women and LGBTQIA and trans and non-binary folks and working with 18-year-old um, adults and older. Uh, I think most of the people I'm working with now kind of fit in that late 20s, 30s, 40s range. Um, and, you know, I'm really enjoying the kind of flexibility I have now working in private practice, it definitely gives me a chance to uh, show up more with my wife and my son, uh, spending time with family. And, and that way I can maybe kind of rest and recharge and show up in a more mindful way with my clients. That's fantastic. I know private practice was like one of my qualifiers before starting a family. And uh, just because I, I wanted to have that time. Yeah, super, super exciting to um, you know, find myself about six six months in and, and uh, keeping the lights on, um, being able to Fantastic. have a few people find me and, and get connected. So um, one thing I've really enjoyed actually being able to kind of make more decisions about my practice is finding connections with other providers and other other therapists and networking and really trying to grow my practice in that way so of course you know there's a lot of maybe uh, a lot of things that I miss and I'm sure many people can relate in private practice where like you don't have the neighbor colleague next door with the door open and go consult with them and have a chat or something and so you know it can be isolating so I've, I've really tried to make that a priority that I'm reaching out connecting with people and um you know, I've really enjoyed that part too. How do you feel like the pandemic has affected your job? I mean, you six months into your private practice, did that play a, play a factor in it? Yeah. So I uh, never in my life had the experience of working from home or, you know, Zoom calls, Zoom sessions, things like that. So, you know, uh, when everything with the pandemic started, uh, that kind of early 
March 2020, I was then working at the group practice and working at the crisis unit. So, you know, at that time, I still had to go. Uh, I was working about four days a week at the crisis unit. So I still had to go in person to uh, my work there. But with all the clients I was meeting with in, in the group practice, it was, okay, we have this plan, we're going to, uh, you know, switch to zoom and telehealth. So, you know, I didn't like it at first, it was totally strange. And so many conversations with clients I was meeting for the first time online, of course, that was strange. And um, I think by now, of course, you know, two years in, we've, we've had a decent amount of time to adjust. And, you know, to be honest, I don't miss some parts of, you know, making a commute to work every day. And, you know, now my, now my commute's a little bit less. So I, I do value some parts. And of course, there's, you know, a lot of concerns or questions people might ask in consultation calls, like, what's it like, you know, I'm, I'm seeking a therapist for the first time. So, um, you know, I've really enjoyed being able to share uh, what my experience has been. And I think over time, it's, it's definitely gotten a little bit better. You know, you, you adjust, we adapt. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I've set up my practice to be 100% online. So the clients I'm working with, um, you know, at this point in time, I don't have any plans to be meeting with clients in person. Although, yeah, there's definitely some parts of me that, that miss that. Matthew, we had talked about this you know, uh, I guess a little over a week ago when we first called, when you expressed interest to be on the podcast, how you have on your website, what to expect in each of the first few sessions, you know, what to expect from the consultation, from the intake and from, right. from goal setting and all these things and how, how kind that is, because it, we just make such an assumption that people are going to get People are going to, you know, automatically assume what's going to happen and people are going to understand and expect something but especially with the population you're working with, you know, you know, figuring out and helping and treating and um, where am I going? Like trying to help with the masculinity and trying to identify positive identity within that. Most folks who are really suffering from that maybe have not even thought about that being an option for them, about therapy being an option for them. And it's just really nice that you've given that bridge. Not a question, more like a comment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really happy to to have that feedback from you. I, I uh, took maybe about six months to create my website before I opened my practice, which is not a liberty that everyone can experience. So I was I was I believe fortunate to have that time, and you know it's actually only something that I recently added in the past few months. And I, um, you know, you you create a website for the first time. Of speaking from my experience, it's like I, I never created a website before, so I, I did everything on my own. And you know, looking at so many other websites, trying to collect some ideas and things like that, um, I didn't really find that too many places. And and of course, you know, I I I I, I find some people connecting with me. They've never seen my website before, so maybe. Maybe it helps uh, when people find me that way through the website, but um, certainly I try to make that a part of my consultation calls. And you know, therapy can be a big mystery, especially if we've never experienced it before. So I think trying to guide people, um, you know, make it as you know, like removing barriers. It's like trying to make the access as uh, you know open as possible. So I, I really appreciate having that feedback. 
I think it's fantastic too, considering your niche of, of new fathers and new parents, because everything is a mystery, um, even through pregnancy. <laughs> My goodness, you're so right. <laughs> like every day is just like, what? Oh, okay. How exciting. <laughs> Something new. And you know, I should extend my congratulations to you. I've heard oh, from previous you. episodes that you're expecting. And, and, you know, like you say, like we're, we're learning by doing, there's sometimes no real, it's like trial by fire. You're in the gauntlet, you know? Yeah. So congratulations to you. Thank you. We just bought our first big piece of baby furniture today. So <laughs> like, whew, it's happening. You're, you're taking me back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, I've I've several clients who are in that first year. Uh, you know, some who've uh, got like two year olds, three year olds, and and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of learning by doing, especially um, just in uh, you know, in my experience, I can totally relate to that. Yeah, and I mean, I was thinking about how much you know, my husband, and I don't really follow traditional like gender roles as far as like doing things in the house, but how like my limitations have made it. So his roles are so much, he has so much more to do. And, you know, I'm always kind of cognizant of the pressure that puts on him. Like our dog is very small to the ground and I can't bend over much anymore. So like most of the dog stuff is now on him, which is really hard. Um, and I, I, I think it's great that you offer that service just because like it's it's again it's a mystery every day new things I'm like oh I can't do this anymore Uh uh-oh um (laughs) you know I'm I'm certainly able to relate to those parts too I mean uh yeah I'm I'm happy to hear that you've uh just kind of got a a little bit of uh, good support there it sounds like and so um you know that's so important because I, I I look you know, to be honest, thinking about so many people and how the, the range of experiences can differ and, and that kind of um, diversity of people and who we are and, and how people move through life. So I, I owe so much to just the, um, you know, the privilege of being together with a partner through all of this, because there's so many people who don't have that kind of support. And I, I, my heart goes out to them, um, you know, so I, I just, uh, makes me, makes me tender thinking about it. Absolutely. I don't know what I would do. I'm like coming up with ways to get the dog higher. That's my, my, <laughs> my next inventions is like a, a little place for her to stand. So I can like wipe her paws and put on her stuff. Are you tying your own shoes? Um, Yes, I can. I can do that still, but like bending down to pick up, you know, like poop and stuff, it's it's getting hard. Yeah, I definitely had to tie a few shoes for my wife <laughs> just to help out. You know, help out when you can, and that's something. Uh, you know, I'll uh, I'll share. I've I've been privileged with some really good supports in my life, and uh, thinking about just you know connecting with people who've been there and who've had the experiences and. Um, you know, I'm sure uh, you both can relate. It's it's just it's nice to get some feedback when you can and get some sound advice. So one of the uh, you know kind of clear themes of messages I I heard from people in my family was just like help out any which way you can. You know, wash a dish, like run a vacuum, or you know wipe down a counter, and 
you know, it's really those small things that really add up and go a long way. Definitely. How do you feel like your personality is reflected in the work that you do? Right now, I'm thinking of this one particular professor I had in my bachelor of social work program. And, you know, conversations I, I had with that professor uh, over the years, even since I've graduated, uh, one that really, uh, you know, became like a topic that we would circle back to in, in follow-up conversations of, you know, right now it escapes me. The, I think it's a book, the author of the book, um, I can't recall their name, but the, uh, the, the theme from that book, and I, I believe it's written into the title, is like the therapist's use of the self and how like, you know, we're the best kind of most visible instrument or ingredient to the therapeutic process. And so, um, you know, just kind of thinking about how I am as a person, how I show up. Um, and combining with another idea that's actually kind of top of mind a little bit more recently for me, um, you know, there's this maybe discussion in like the mental health world about like modern therapy, like what is that? And, you know, I, I, I express that or kind of, um, you know, buy into this idea and I write about it through my website copy and my like, you know, uh, business brand and, and marketing of my practice where it's, you know, my, my practice for psychotherapy, I say, is a modern and inclusive online mental health practice. And when I think of that modern uh, piece to all of that, it's like, you know, the, the traditional kind of perception of therapy and, and kind of how it worked out from the therapist role was to be that kind of blank slate and to be that kind of, uh, you know, uh, sounding board to elicit transference and counter-transference and all those things to help clients become more aware of uh, their unconscious drives and motivations, all that. So this modern idea is like being real and showing up and using yourself and acknowledging, you know, your own maybe emotions and sharing and, and um, you know, connecting on that kind of you know, that human level where we're real people. And we, um, you know, that's why I say like, I'm an imperfect husband, new dad and, and therapist, because we all, um, you know, can connect through our, our struggles or our, our obstacles and barriers and roadblocks and things like that. So I, uh, I definitely you know, try to make sure, and it's important to me that I uh, like judiciously self-disclose like I certainly don't want to overwhelm or take over and dominate any kind of um, therapy session or moment with my stuff but you know and at the same time like I want to make sure that clients can see me and and experience their relationship with me in a way that works for them so that way you know I've, I've often especially with men um you know tried to lead the way and embrace and model that vulnerability and and it you know, in, in my experience, it's the, it's the, uh, the meat and potatoes that they really connect with and, and kind of drives that work, which of course we all have been, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure just generalizing here, just been, been told in our like training and education that, you know, the big factor that moves and drives the work is the therapeutic relationship. So, you know, my, my brand, my niche, um, I'm a new dad. I thought building my practice, I 
was trying to think of who I might be able to connect with best or, or more, um, more easily. And certainly I wanted to be able to position myself uh, as that kind of support person and, you know, be that kind of uh, support that holds space for men and new dads, because that's how I, it, it's like front and center in my life. Uh, it's very, very a big part of me right now. Yeah. I mean, I find that like my niche is anxiety and I am a sufferer of anxiety. So like, it's because I have a very personal relationship with it. That's fantastic. Matthew, I'm so glad you brought up that the inaccessibility of the non-sharing therapist, like how the blank slate can be so intimidating and actually makes, facilitates and fosters a session that is really can actually feel very unsafe. And I, I think that modern therapy does have, you know, gives clients that ability to feel connected and to humanize their therapist, but also allows politics to come into the therapy room a little bit, which I, which I think itself has been very oppressive historically that we haven't allowed clients to really discuss, I mean, you know, call it politics or human rights, but really express that in a way and not explore that and endorse it and encourage it. And it sounds very aligned with what you're talking about too. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, I, I was just kind of reflecting after our conversation, just get when we first got connected and, and how important it is for uh, many clients I've, I've connected with, especially over the past two years with, the pandemic experience and, and, you know, just like at the federal level and state level, local levels and in like the climate of our like politics and, and like, you know, cultural experiences and what we've like collectively experienced socially. Like there is just uh, so many clients asking me directly, like, how do you feel towards A, B or C? And I've found that, even if I may have, uh, you know, diversity or difference of views and things like this on, on like politics or like social uh, events, current events, um, you know, I, I've got my values as a social worker and politics are personal. Um, you know, I, I uh, took a course in my grad school master's program that was called Federal Issues in Action, uh, Social Work and Legislative Policy. And so it was, uh, I, I went to NYU and we were at the, the DC campus uh, for, for the, uh, this, this course. Um, we were de- uh, briefed by DC like policy experts on social security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, immigration, comprehensive immigration reform at that time was a, a big issue uh, like nationally. Um, and then also the uh, uh, Whitney, M. Young and Dorothy I. Height Social Work Reinvestment Act. Uh, that was a bill, uh, you know, really trying to enhance the social work profession as a whole um, and research about it and get funding to better understand how social workers impact communities and people. So long story short, all of this to say, um, I was introduced to uh, that kind of legislative process and, and really got to absorb and, and feel and see um, how important it is for me as a social worker and for us collectively as like mental health professionals to bring up certain topics or to introduce and open that door for clients to be able to 
know that, okay, even if we have some difference or even if if we're a million miles apart, I can still support you. And at the same time, I'm going to advocate for what I believe. Yeah, I, I love it. The new, well, who knows if it's even new, maybe again, like you've mentioned, maybe we are just more in communication with each other virtually now. But there is a seemingly new movement for especially a call to white therapists to, you know, identify with white clients supremacy in session and help to dismantle it. Not because, I mean, not solely, which would be enough of a reason, not solely because it is it is for the greater good, but also because it's very indicative of some attachment stuff. You know, it's very indicative of some type of like lack of insight and mental block. It is not, it's not about thinking that you're better than someone else. It's about you having something that is unprocessed. Yeah. Definitely, definitely got some thoughts here. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, you, uh, you bring it into the space. And I, I think that's in my experience, whenever I've brought topics like this or, or sensitive discussion topics into the therapy room with clients. Like I, I find that it, it, you know, the feedback I am reflecting on from clients is like, you know, it's, it's really helpful. They, they, they may tell me like, it's really helpful that you brought it up because of course, like, um, and you know, like even with the man box, for example, it's like, um, people may tell me and I hear people say, you know, it's, it's, it's stuff that I experienced, but maybe I didn't have the language or be able to put the words to it. Now that I have had that space, it's certainly, um, you know, kind of a relief to be able to connect with you and to be able to process that for myself. So, um, you know, what comes to mind, especially about, um, you know, whiteness is the, uh, uh, the, the book white fragility and how the, the theme speaks to, uh, people who experience that kind of sensitivity towards their own whiteness and feel attacked. And so they kind of disengage or they, they get defensive and, and kind of go on the, the, the attack. So, you know, the, the parallel there, I think, thinking in terms of gender and talking about uh, the kind of buzzword of like toxic masculinity, um, you know, there's so many, uh, a range of opinions and views on like that particular word like the toxic part and whether or not that should be included or, you know, refrain from using that term because maybe, you know, the, the idea and and the experience might be that it turns men away from the discussion when men need to be kind of called in instead of being called out. And, you know, there's, Mm -hmm. there's definitely the, the, uh, you know, the parallel there where, um, you know, I believe the author's name is Robin D'Angelo talking about how we need as, you know, um, white identifying people, how we need to be um, addressed and included and, you know, how we need to work with that sensitivity. So, um, yeah, we're, we're not going to get anywhere by avoiding these conversations. I agree. Just to, so to I... kind of sum it up and toss it back to you all. Yeah. Let's let's dive into the man box a little bit. And, you know, we talked about the history of it, what it is exactly, but you had sent me a very clear, very, really cool illustration. And I'm talking like literal illustration of <laughs> like what's in the man box, what we label it as, what we don't put in it and what we don't, um, what we put out of it. Could you talk a little bit in your own words about what this is for you? Yeah, I'll start by sharing uh, 
piece of feedback a client shared with me when I introduced uh, like a little bit of focus and discussion about the man box during the therapy session, they said to me that uh, uh, just kind of reflecting to, to paraphrase, they had said, um, you know, I didn't know what that was when you first started talking about it, but now that I see, and now that I hear you talk about it, I know exactly what that is. Um, you know, the man box is, you know, like you say, like Tony Porter, you know, the, the history lesson, um, Mark Green, like there are so many, um, so many times uh, that people have written about or, or talked about and researched uh, these kinds of ideas of the man box. Um, you know, in general, it includes a lot of gender norms and uh, expectations and kind of these definitions of masculinity or, um, you know, these definitions of, of who is a man, what should a man be and, and what should a man not be or how they should feel and what they should not feel or, you know, how they should live and, and um, relate to other people. And so um, I think it's in, in my personal opinion, and I'm sure many people would, would share uh, I don't want to speak for them, um, but it's a repressive box that um, really uh, limits the well-being and the wellness of the greater good. Um, you know, I've, uh, I think a little bit about how, you know, my own journey in life has been shaped by the man box. And, you know, you, you asked me, like, kind of how does my personality show up, like, you know, of course I can, I can fit into the man box. I've, I've lived in the man box and I can step out of it. And, um, you know, the, the view from the outside in, I think is similar to, you know, just talking earlier about parallels with, with issues of race or class and gender and like politics. Like I've, I've uh, a really dear friend who I met in high school uh, he was a part of a German exchange student program. Uh, we stayed connected over the years and, and had shared so many conversations about, uh, especially American politics. And um, was talking about America itself, like as this box that you don't recognize, you're not consciously aware of so many things until you're outside of that box. So, you know, I've, I've had a, a many conversations with clients about the man box where, like I said, they, they didn't necessarily um, know it by name, but they feel it, they experience it. And it's so ingrained, like, you know, your history lesson had shared, um, going back decades and going back generations. And, um, you know, one, one aspect I would say about masculinity in general, um, it's not bad in and of itself and kind of thinking about like internal family systems therapy and that kind of you know, framework, it's like, there's no, no bad parts. Like we have to welcome and accept and validate all the parts of ourself or all the parts of our gender or our race or our community. Um, and we have to find ways to welcome it and give it some, some love and compassion. And through that, hopefully we have some self-compassion and that, you know, can be the uh, I'd love to have a, a pandemic of self-compassion that's contagious and spreads just as easily as some other things that we would prefer not to experience. So, um, you know, I want to slow down and let you both jump in. For sure. I mean, I think when 
when I bring in politics or just like overall social social norms or culture into sessions it's it's kind of in that radical acceptance part of like this is somewhat informing your either negative core beliefs or your core beliefs because like this is I mean I'm having I I'm just thinking of clients I have that this is like a constant kind of conversation that we have it's like some of it is outside of your control and we have to accept that in order to work with it definitely i i love the notion of having loving kindness and self-compassion be a be a, be a epidemic i so good. that has been part of my own therapy journey over the past six months you know i was unfamiliar with the concept and i just seeing how how wide and vast the community is and how you know fair how knowledgeable so many people are about it and how easy it is to pass on any challenging obviously to start the behavior of self-compassion on your own but it makes all the difference it makes all the difference and it's just such a I mean it's in the name it's just such a kind thing you can do for yourself to take that moment to have some compassion for yourself and everybody else in the room and every experience that you've had it's it's a favor you can do for you and everyone comes to mind as you're sharing all of that how you know in kind of how I may join clients to work with the man box clinically and I'd like to share a quick kind of reflection how uh, you know I was introducing this kind of self-compassion writing exercise to which I introduced to many clients but um, there was this one particular moment where you know I was reading through and, and talking about a couple concepts related to compassion, self-compassion, um, kind of uh, guiding my client towards this, uh, you know, exercise where they would write a love letter to themselves and how in general um, they found it to be very difficult and challenging and you know, I was talking with them this idea how like, you know, in, in, in general, like male, female, non-binary experiences, I'm sure there's some part of this that we could generalize to say, like, we're often as people um, taught to respect other people or taught to, you know, be compassionate towards others or to, um, you know, establish relationships and make friends with other people. But we're not generally taught how to be respectful towards ourselves or to, um, you know, uh, engage with that relationship with our core self and, and to, to have compassion towards ourselves. So I, I expressed and kind of made the observation, um, you know, if it's difficult for you speaking to my client to say, you know, if it's difficult for you, I can understand that because you've not been taught how to do this before. And, you know, that kind of sign or that kind of experience of discomfort that it's challenging or difficult, you know, that's like a signal to you that it's uh, that, that you're doing it right. And that this is worthwhile, um, you know, so uh, trying to deliberately guide clients towards the edge of their comfort and discomfort. Uh, this comes out of a, a practice called uh, deliberate practice, uh, where, you know, you try to evaluate what's there and what's not there and you welcome it and try to embrace it and you know, in that struggle is where you're going to and challenge and difficulty. That's where you're going to find the most growth. Um, so I, um, 
can totally understand, uh, you know, just therapy in general being difficult for men and trying to, um, you know, not turn my back on clients or not shame them and try and make sure that, um, you know, they know that I'm going to be there uh, kind of step-by-step as a partner trying to guide them. Yeah. You're helping someone unlearn a learned universal truth of this is not meant for me. You know, this kind of feeling, this kind of state of being is not meant for me. So you're not just, you're not only teaching them that you're also creating a space in which they can come to learn the truth that this, no, this is an option. I mean, we're, if we're talking class, class struggle and race struggle and all the other, like from any oppressed group, people are often, they reach a state of, I never thought this would be possible for me. And I can imagine that that exists within this realm as well, as I never envisioned that I could have this kind of feeling towards myself. I never thought I could reach this state. I didn't think it was an option for me. It's amazing. Truly. Yeah, I think at the core, like, uh, you know, Bell, the, the author Bell Hooks talks about this uh, in their books and, you know, their their vision about men. And, and it's like at their core, like men really want to be loved, to love and be loved. And, uh, you know, so many times I'm, I'm talking with men about these gender norms and expectations with the man box and, and really, um, you know, helping men recognize that maybe they've never been in a situation where they've been asked to reflect on their gender and how their gender influence or shapes or impacts their lifestyle their and like you said joanna like the the core beliefs and and attitudes and all these things so um you know like we're speaking about with other uh social cultural influences political influences it's like when when we're not leaning towards the edge of that comfort discomfort when we're not giving it any time or attention you know when we just want to avoid and you know look the other way um you know, it's, it's definitely kind of harmful to not just that individual person, but like you're saying, Sarah, like the, the greater good, like the whole, the whole of us as people. Yeah, I don't, I completely <laughs> agree. <laughs> um, I mean, just something I've noticed that's definitely gendered and I've noticed in myself is like the negative core belief of that you're selfish, especially as a woman, like you don't sacrifice enough. Why would you want these things? Um and I, I do think a lot of our core beliefs are definitely gendered by the society that we live in. Yeah, I'd love it if it was different. <laughs> <That'd> <laughs> Me <be great>. too. <laughs> We'd maybe I'd be out of it. jobs, but it would be great if it was yeah. different. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the idea I have speaking to that exactly, it's like, it, wouldn't it be nice if we could just work ourselves out of a job if these things weren't? Mm-hmm. causing so much stress or so much problem um and like i said it's not to not to say that masculinity in and of itself is a problem um but really like especially if you read bell hooks especially if you um you know kind of look at some of the uh you know i would say more um feminist pr- perspective towards masculinity in recent times to say that you know women's liberation is tied to men's liberation and vice versa um you know we all uh have to look at the big impact of patriarchy and how that impacts 
each and every one of us, because of course, you know, masculinity, the man box, um, it's done a lot of harm towards many people, not just women, but men as well. And, you know, you, you look at, um, you know, I just pick one, uh, one of these kinds of gender norms. It's, it's like the, the violations that are policed through the man box include like homophobia, racism, and misogyny. Um, there is an assault on trans rights, trans lives, trans bodies, people of, uh, you know, a range of many different identities. And it's really sad. It's really uh, disturbing. And, you know, I, for one, uh, try to make sure that this uh, kind of lesson I learned in my bachelor social work program, you know, kind of speaking a little bit earlier, the question you asked me, like, how does my personality show up to, to identify my privilege and to understand how, how best I can use my power and privilege with integrity and to, you know, try to do more good, do no harm, but take no shit. Uh, you know, Sorry for the uh, French American English there. Yeah, fuck we all that. I, I, think, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very. I, so this is Matthew. As you're talking, I'm thinking of this, and this is something I will say probably weekly to one or multiple clients: is you know, analyze if a thought or a view you have is there because of the media you've absorbed. I think that media has caused us so much damage in what our expectations should be. And at the end of the day, it's just people sitting in a writer's room, no people, just people sitting in a writer's room, deciding what is going to be easily palatable by the most amount of people. And oftentimes we just hold beliefs and we hold values that are instilled by our favorite show or by something that we watched when we were a kid or by the family's favorite movie growing up. And this is not factual. This is not your experience. This is just something that you have seen and you've absorbed and essentially been victimized in gaslighted gaslight into thinking that this is true. So wondering what your thoughts are on that. Media is, media is definitely uh, a strong influence, you know, obviously not the only influence, but um, yeah, absolutely. There's uh I think it was just the other day I was chatting with my wife and a couple of our friends who are also new parents. And, um, you know, they were telling us they went to go turn on Disney plus and, and, uh, watch the movie Aladdin and how there was a Disney disclaimer saying like, look, there's some content and themes that's going to show up in this, uh, in this movie that were wrong then they're wrong now. And we accept responsibility and want to shape the conversation in a way that is productive and, and centered on healing and growth. Um, so they even added like a community or like a website link that you could go and give feedback and, and engage others in discussion. And I, um, you know, had conversation with my wife and our friends about it. And it was just so, um, it was so nice to see in general. And then, you know, at the um, same time, kind of connecting with what you're saying about like how, um, and the earlier influences with media and then, you know, like you spoke about attachment and it's just incredibly um, daunting 
when you might think of the task that is ahead of us as clinicians for any issue, but especially talking about something so big like masculinity and how it's been shaped by patriarchy and thinking a little bit of you know, how that trickles into our media or you know whatever it might be that has an influence on us, on our development. So um, definitely a massive task and one that, um, you know, you look at the, the value and the worth of it. Um, you know, I, I take that money to the bank or take that fight to the bank. Like it's definitely something that is um, a, a very important uh, undertaking. So um, I'm definitely proud to be able to create a practice that's focused on, on this kind of stuff. Um, you know, I didn't see a whole lot of many other, uh, there are many other practices, but I didn't, or I should say there are some, um, but I didn't see a whole lot of, uh, you know, whether it's in the, the States where I'm licensed, like New York, Georgia, Maryland, like, um, it's limited when you, when you, when you maybe compare the uh, availability of therapists who are focused on specifically on women's issues or postpartum mental health or perinatal mental health. And, and, um, you know, so I, I definitely have had some really great conversations connecting with providers who work specifically with women and thinking of how, um, you know, social media, for example, uh, is kind of, uh, lacking, uh, that kind of presence. So, you know, I, I don't post on my Verve psychotherapy social media as often as maybe many others in, in our field who are using that tool to, to share and educate about their, um, their, their work. But certainly, uh, you know, when I do, I want to make sure that it's, it's a message that doesn't turn men off or away from the conversation, because of course that man box is there and, you know, the, the guarded armor gets activated and people go into defense mode and start to go on the attack, like we said, for other, other things when we may uh, kind of shame one of the parts. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, what brought you into social work? I actually love being able to talk about this. Uh, and I, I love it with the uh, uh, just kind of authenticity, uh, honesty, like, you know, I uh, started out going to school, like recruited for a a division three soccer school out of high school, was super interested in soccer, not so much in school. Um, And I took some general education courses. I think I wrote down like a business major uh, you know, vision for my education. My first semester in school, I got a zero, zero GPA. Uh, I failed. And with a zero, zero GPA, it's almost like, how do you do that? Like, don't you have to try to fail that well? Um, you know, I was only interested in playing soccer. I connected with a bunch of friends, really wanted to socialize and party and hang out. And I didn't really go to class. Uh, I went to the test days and the quizzes, but certainly I found out that was not enough. Um, so I failed and my family was full of big emotions and I experienced a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. 
and took myself to the mirror and leaned on my family support, which I was fortunate to have. And, um, you know, tried to really have a long think and a good look at what I wanted my life to be like at that time. So, you know, for me, like that was a big rock bottom. Um, you know, I talk with clients of trying to lean into that edge of their comfort, discomfort, and, you know, using, if you find a rock bottom, um, you know, planting a seed and then, you know, the seed and the plant grows up from there. So I moved home, transferred to a community college, got real serious about my studies, took a lot of uh, psychology courses, um, finished my associate's degree. I transferred to the uh, kind of nearby uh, four-year university. I went to Eastern Michigan University and through there, uh, one of my friends in another, I think it was like an intro to acting course in the theater department, um, they were in a social work course and they were talking about me, like, what do you want to do with your degree? And I was like, oh, I think I want to be like a psychology major. So, you know, they were like, why do you want to do that? And I was telling them my story. They said, uh, you know, you can do counseling. Like I wanted to be like a, a counselor for youth at that time, kind of, kind of the idea, like, you know, maybe I can support young kids and, uh, maybe they won't make some of the same mistakes I did. So it's kind of a little of that like wounded healer path. Um, so they, they, my friend in this, this course, they were like, oh, well, I'm in the social work program. You should check it out. So, you know, the next semester I got into a, like an intro to social work course. I immediately connected with, you know, the values base and like the, the learning about like human behavior in the social environment and all that, um, all that jazz. So I got into the social work program. I did my, uh, internship with a prisoner reentry program and worked with adults who were, you know, that zero to six months uh, experience of making a transition from prison into the community on parole supervision. Um, you know, I was working as a caseworker and I really connected with the work. Um, you know, from there, I worked at that program like a gap year uh, through AmeriCorps VISTA, uh, where I was not enrolled in school, but I was, um, you know, still contracting with that same program. And I applied for grad schools, uh, which I had a nice um, privilege with the, like, getting the, uh, the fees waived for grad school applications. They add up. They can be pretty costly. So I applied to... Um, you know, the schools that I was interested in and found my way to NYU. And it's been quite a journey since then, I think maybe. So I, I started that program in 2012. Um, from there, I worked in a juvenile justice program. And then I got into the child and family mental health work. Uh, from there, I think I've shared kind of a few parts of that story since then. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a wild ride. It definitely started with a bit of a rock bottom. And it's not the only rock bottom I've had since then. I've definitely found some bumps in the road, just like the next person. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, I, I wouldn't change it in general. Thank you for sharing that. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have had so many of the other rich experiences that come with a little bit of resiliency and support and things like that too. So it's, 
uh, you know, no bad parts. It's all kind of grist for the mill, you know? Yeah. I feel, I felt very, um, hmm. I felt pretty lit up while you were telling that story. Cause I myself had a challenge in undergrad and it, I left it. Actually, I had blocked a lot of the memories out, which I later found out in my own processing, but I had had my own bumpy road with, you know, landing on a major and having it not work out, being very ill-prepared for the intensity of college. And then just kind of skating through the rest of it, hoping I could get enough, a high enough GPA to pass and graduate. And then, you know, whatever comes with that. So it's really, I love this kind of ownership of it and not like it's something that I need to hide which is still something I struggle with, but not like it's something I need to hide, but it's something that I can wear as something that I've survived. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not something negative that someone can find out about me. It's something that's actually, it's um, grist for the mill, like you said. I think it ties into like patriarchy and the man box, how, you know, the, the messaging, whether it's for, for young boys or young girls or, anyone who you know they hear you've got to be tough you've got to present that kind of perfect image and you know you've got to uh, be strong you know like don't talk about your weaknesses and things like that so um you know, i admire that for you sharing here thank you yeah that's it's as you're saying that too i'm thinking about this role of being the successful daughter also and fitting some type of <laughs> role that was very necessary and how confusing it was when it didn't all come easily like oh you're gonna be a musician okay oh boy yeah that's what teachers said to me (laughs) yeah you know it's uh it's it's so um it's so prevalent and cruel in really these, you know, kind of digs that you might get along the way when really it's like, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could just pursue our own dreams and what we want to do instead of having all these norms and expectations. Um, of course, you know, there's a time and place and maybe there's some value for some of these things. I think it's just trying to look at what's there, what's not there, what's useful, what's helpful and meaningful. And, and, um, you know, one, one thing I'll share, I, I like to work kind of like a pirate and I tell clients about this, you know, like, especially if I'm on a consultation call, they'll, they'll say, Hey, you know, tell me about your approach. How do you work? So I say, you know, my kind of clinical or medical description, like how I approach is kind of like an integrated approach, but I like to work kind of like a pirate and think of it with some humor. Um, you know, we're going to search for the treasure. If, you know, CBT is what's working for you, then great. We'll keep it. If it's not, you know, I've got a menu of other options, other approaches to therapy, you know, we'll, we'll pick the treasure and leave the rest for anybody else who needs it. You know, like, um, so, so in general, I'm, I'm thinking of like, you know, there's definitely some, some valuable parts to masculinity. There's definitely some valuable parts to femininity. And, you know, we, I think, just in general, we, we got to find the treasure, keep the parts that work for everybody and, you know, find that common good, that common ground and, um, you know, be that pirate. 
Yeah, I find that understandably clients can get frustrated. I, you know, if whether there's like lack of psychoeducation on my part or a previous therapist or just general expectations. But when you do let them know, like if this one doesn't work, we go to the next one. You know, we have so there's so many options for us to be able to find you relief. And that is a great thing. And we're working our way down the list. (laughs) Matthew, what's something about you that would surprise us and our listeners? Talking about surprise. (laughs) Uh, My goodness. You know, um, probably unexpected to hear this from me. I brought it up to you at the very beginning of our discussion before we started recording all. I'll share a bit of a surprise with uh, its own kind of trigger warning and uh, share that I just recently lost my father who passed away last week. And, you know, of course, uh, I'm sure that's a big surprise to anyone listening that I would be ready or open to sharing and talking about. And I uh, certainly, you know, wanted to make sure that you all were able to hear that from me before we started recording today, because, um, you know, I've, I've, I've heard from especially my family and friends over the past couple of days, like how life sometimes takes away more than it gives as we get older. And, um, you know, my, my dad was always a hard worker and, you know, which again, sidebar talking into like my own masculinity journey. Um, you know, he, he always wanted to help myself and my siblings, you know, my brothers and sister understand the value of work. And, you know, I, uh, certainly going to be meeting with my therapist as soon as possible, you know, leaning into all of my family support and, and, uh, you know, trying to slow down and just take good care of myself, uh, which has been difficult the past few days, um, you know, but in general, I've uh, certainly decided with my practice and with my work and the clients that I meet with regularly that I would um, take a little bit of time and, uh, you know, certainly then get back into action with a intention to um, still show up and, you know, monitor myself that hey, maybe I need to move and cancel this appointment and I just have to go day by day, sometimes moment by moment and make that decision for myself. Um, And certainly also, um, yeah, I'm sure there's mixed opinion in the like therapy world about, you know, maybe how therapists like we would respond or show up following a, a significant loss like I've just experienced. So Um, I decided for myself that I was going to try my best and monitor and modify and then, you know, embrace and kind of uh, lead the way with that vulnerability. Um, So I've even uh, been open with a couple of my clients, especially the uh, clients who've experienced their own grief. And that's the kind of meat and potatoes reasons why we're meeting with each other, which you know, grief comes in so many different forms. Uh, it's not just death and dying, um, but COVID stress, COVID loss, uh, could be a job or a career or even like a lifestyle that new dads miss and long for. 
or new parents and you know that range of grief and how it shows up so i would just share here i'll slow down and let you both jump in uh make more of a conversation out of it um but certainly i'm sure uh, that would be a big surprise to hear from a therapist in a therapy session or you know tuning into a podcast like this yeah it was a surprise yeah. to me that you were here um and yeah. i thank you for sharing that and also being here with that and and kind of humanizing that therapists also go through significant life events and that it's going to impact us in different ways maybe not necessarily impact the way we do work but because therapy is such a personal experience um yeah therapists are people too we are (laughs) yeah matthew I'm, i'm so grateful for the opportunity for you to also you know with your own grief and your vulnerability vulnerability draw this very stunning example of somebody being able to have that and sit with it and present it in a way that is owning it because I I think that oftentimes within and we're not calling masculinity something negative but sometimes there can be in the man box I'm assuming correct me if I'm wrong but this rejection of vulnerability as performative um if that makes sense, like almost this, you, you know, you are doing this for something, but in reality, vulnerability is such an important connection that we can have with people around us. You know, our, our culture is very rejecting of vulnerability for that reason. And I'm, I'm so touched to be able to be here with you during this time. Um, yeah, nothing beyond that. It warms my heart. Uh, being able to, you know, sit with you just in general, um, connecting with you both has been so far a very pleasant experience. And, and uh, you know, when I think about where I'm at, you know, where I've been, what direction I want to go, like for me, um, you know, showing up here today was important because, um you know, when, when we experience emotion, like in that moment, like that's where uh, it can be most useful when we tune in, when we listen with messages and things like that, like, you know, reflecting on emotions is certainly important. Um, but there's a, there's, you know, I speak about kind of the pirate perspective, there's a lot of treasure there. Um, so I, I, I wanted to honor my emotions, myself, um, honor my family in this way, um, you know, to be able to, you know, and, and it, uh, to be able to, I'm thinking of maybe how best to describe it. It's not, it's not that I'm like, quote, quote, like trying to be strong. You know I mean? I hear that from a lot of people, especially over the past few days. And, uh, you know, there's all these platitudes, which of course, just, you know, if any of my direct family or friends are listening or any, anyone else, like, of course, I appreciate hearing, you know, these messages um, and, you know, I've expressed them to other people before, but, you know, I, I find that there's, uh, so many different things that I could have been doing right now, I'm sure. And, you know, spoke out loud and said to you, Hey, I, I, I can't do it. And I, I just recognized in myself that, you know, especially with my work with clients and kind of the approach I'm taking to be, um, 
you know, appropriately finding that entry point, making sure that I'm not putting my clients in a position to care for me and, you know, taking up their session time. Um, you know, just being able to openly and honestly let people know what's going on with me in a, in a very intentional way. Like I, I find that that's um, something that I, I, I needed to do for myself and I recognize that. So, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm hopeful to just slow down, connect with my therapist, connect with my family and, and my support system and, and really like give myself permission to cry. I've noticed a couple of times over the past few days where I was like, you know, wanting to cry, feeling it like bubbling up and, and that man box was right there. Um, and, you know, I think that, uh, you know, it is what it is. I'll, I'll, uh, I, I let my tears fall in session times before when it had nothing to do with my own stuff. Um, you know, and I've, I've, I've talked on a couple other podcasts of, you know, and especially with my colleagues, if they consult with me or if I'm consulting with them, um, how, you know, I try not to hide my tears if I'm connected with a client and they're sharing with me about their grief or something causing sadness. And if I have tears, I, I show them, uh, which definitely doesn't fit into the man box or that's certainly one of those violations that would be policed uh, in, in general. So yeah, I, uh, I appreciate you both. Um, just want to say thank you and send everyone my love. Thank you. Yeah. Received. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I, there are a lot of things I think in our conversation that maybe neither of us or all three of us did not expect. And this, I mean, this kind of this I mean, we often, Joanna, I think in session are able to reach this kind of vulnerability, but it's it's such a pleasure to be able to experience it at this level, obviously very careful with that word pleasure, you sure. know, regarding the situation that brought us here. But at the same time, this connection that can be brought in these times is something that is very unique to to us, to our to our species. I wonder if I can throw the question right back at both of you of sure. maybe some kind of surprise that, um, which I know, of course, like, you know, it was a bit of a surprise to me hearing a little bit about this 3000 piece puzzle. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, a little bit about uh, some, uh, maybe how do you say it, Joanna, like some spelling bee trauma. <laughs> uh, Definitely I, some spelling bee trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Maybe it's got to do with a puzzle or spelling bee stuff, but maybe not. I certainly want to, uh, you know, hear from you both. What's something that might surprise other folks? Mm. 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 I usually say pole vault. I used to pole vault for mine, but I already, but everybody knows that already. So, oh, I don't know. Let's have pole, a let's have a moment of yeah. I used to pole, pole vault vaulting. in high school. Yeah. <laughs> As like a, a relatively short person, it is like surprising if you see a person. I'm like, yeah, you used to jump over things. No. You got to get higher. Go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that would also make, I don't know, in some way, like I'm sure you uh, pole vault maybe a bit more easier, mm. uh, you know, just in general. Yeah. 
We've had this discussion. Would... It's wild that pole vaulting exists. It I... is nonsensical. Maybe this is surprising Dangerous. about pole vaulting is that like the best part is when you eventually jump over the bar and you have to throw your pole away because if you continue to hold on to the pole, it will knock over the bar. And like it almost comes as like a like like a natural instinct to throw the it's so cool it was like the best feeling of it to just be like I made it you know like throw the pole back it I don't know that was like the best part of it that we didn't really have to train to throw it you just like kind of instinctually know to to toss the pole I guess that's surprising I love I love hearing about that because that's never been a part I've never pole vaulted and (laughs) now I'm curious yeah. Okay. So I'll stick with the track and field thing. God <laughs> damn. <Joanna. laughs> so, so I ran hurdles in high school. I, I won at a county championship. Ooh. Uh, uh, they hurt when you hit them with either the bottom of your shoe or your calf or your parts. Um, they were supposed to give when you <laughs> run into them, but they are metal and plastic. Um, if you have ever played a sport, this is for both of you and those listening, if you've ever played a sport where it is not a group effort, but it is an individualized <laughs> individualized uh, experience, you have known anxiety. You have known terror. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Just like the way there for the, the, uh, waiting and then the weird moment when everybody's looking at you and there are expectations and I still get I still get stomach aches and like mild GI distress when I think about before track meets oh yeah terrible enjoy that information Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> oh, Christ. All right. Should we move to our would you rather question for today? Yeah. All right. That so sounds would, good. would you rather travel the world for five years or live in your dream house? Ugh. Sorry. <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you this. I, for me here and now, like this point in time in my life, like my home is anywhere you can find my wife so if we can travel together for five years i'll be at home the whole time oh that's so sweet i think you won that question (laughs) that is very nice (laughs) i may as well not even give my reason why this question is nonsense (laughs) i I love traveling i would i i love i love the idea of a dream house too and then maybe that i don't know there's a part of me that wonders like you know would it be sweeter to have uh, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm splitting hairs here with like linguistics. It's like if it's a dream, is it real? Mm. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> what if it's a dream house in a place you want to travel to? Um, and I so can, then, uh, I yeah, that's that's what I would. This is this is I would choose the dream house just because I'm nesting right now. So I'm like, ooh, dream house, fall the rooms, and it would be in like a really pretty place. <laughs> That I would want to travel to. Dream house doesn't sound half bad. No. <laughs> I, I, I could definitely go for that. If I if I have to pick what I'd rather, I'd probably travel and, and collect the memories that way. 
but I can understand what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think contextually, like... dreamhouses are not always like available now, right? I mean, and and during the pandemic, we can't travel for five years and we can't buy our dreamhouses. <laughs> so I would, like I will a, wait three years and then I'll answer this question. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd certainly also travel. traveling would right now would be maybe a bit complicated too. So yeah, I don't know, maybe and you can't buy a house now either. So it's what's well, your dream house? So you don't even have to buy it. That's my. <laughs> it's just given <sighs> to you. <laughs> oh yeah, in my Speaking in my mind. Um. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I just like look at pictures of kitchens and I'm like, oh, look at this kitchen. <laughs> that's what I've resigned myself to in this time before we we are able to buy a house is learning everything I can about DIY and learning everything I can about home purchases because I literally it's the only semblance of control that can be had at this moment oh. and you know what we're embracing that day to day I'm glad solid all right, cool. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any resources or any plugs for your business or yourself that you'd like to share with us? Absolutely. There's uh, a really, really great podcast. It's, it's, it's so poignant and like kind of related, connected to all of our discussion today. It's called the man enough podcast. Um, there's a, uh, you know, kind of connected to the discussion with a call to men and Tony Porter, there was an episode just released with Tony Porter, I think it was maybe last week, um, which, you know, when this episode airs, it'll be a little bit of time since that episode came out. So um, yeah, it's called the man enough podcast. Uh, Lots of treasure there for any discussion related to masculinity. Uh, It came out of a, a book written by Justin Baladoni, who's an actor and he was also had a TED talk about uh, why he was tired of trying to prove that he was man enough. Um, Justin Baldoni is on the podcast, also a good close friend of his, uh, Jamie Heath, and the author Liz Plank, who's uh, author of the book For the Love of Men, uh, New Vision for Mindful Masculinity. Um, mm. Both of those books, Justin Baldoni's books, uh, book and Liz Plank's book, I would totally encourage, recommend um, that podcast. It's got so many great guests and like I said, lots of treasure there. Um, you know, beyond that, my website for my practice is www.vervepsychotherapy.com. It's V as in Victor and um, people can find me on probably more active on social media with Instagram. It's Verve Psychotherapy. Perfect. Matthew, we're going to put those resources on our website and I'm actually very excited to listen to the Man Enough podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be with you. It's so, so great to be able to share this space. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, we will talk soon. Thank you for listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe slash rate slash review us on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Instagram at TNDPod or on Twitter at TNDPod1, one as in the number one, or visit our website at TNDPodcast.com. Um, and check out our Patreon because we just 
revamped it. It's really exciting. We have tiers from $1 a month to $50 a month. Um, and we're pretty excited. Maybe soon we'll kind of go through each of those tiers, um, together at the end of a podcast, but pretty excited about it and engaging with a community on Patreon as well. Um, if you would like to email us, uh, if you'd like to be interviewed on the show, you can send that email to therapists next door at gmail.com. That's therapist plural. Sarah, is there anything you would like to plug? Yeah. Check out teletherapy with Sarah.com forward slash blog and check out a blog that is meant for both working class and professional millennials. Uh, learning how to get through this world and this life. Uh, teletherapy underscore with Sarah Instagram. Also, I have a podcast and you're oh, listening to it. So oh, enjoy that. I was worried you had like another podcast without me. <laughs> and here's where I'm telling you. Uh, okay. Yep. Um, I'd like to plug my therapy practice, orianatherapy.com. I'd also like to plug, this is just like a general thing that, that'd be cool to watch is, um, we need to talk about Bill Cosby. I just finished it. It's like a four hour, uh, docu-series. It is so good. Um, and I, yeah, there's, I don't want to open the box of talking about it because it's multi-layered, but it's an amazing documentary. Um, probably the best I'll see this year. And that's awesome. Like pretty early on to be calling that. So yeah, that is great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Alrighty. Until next time. We, we are, your are your therapists. Therapists. Next. Next door. door. <laughs> For some reason I needed oh, to like shit. read awesome. the read that. And so I was like, oh no, I'm not looking at I mean, at I do Sarah. every time. I do every time. All right. Oh shoot. <laughs> Thank you.